Hi, everybody. It's Stu. I'm your host, and I'm here with the paranormalist, Patty Wilson. Patty, how are you tonight? I am a little tired, but um, doing very well, and I'm excited about sharing the ghost stories. You know, ghosts are my favorite thing and my first love, and so telling some cool ghost stories it always is a very pleasant evening for me. It's going to be pleasant for me, too, as I sit back and listen as you regale your ghost stories. All right, so let's get started. Um, okay. I, I did a lot of, uh, of physical health work before I did mental health, and I have to tell you, nearly every place I've ever worked, um, there are stories. There are stories that the police officers will tell you. There are stories that um, paramedics and ambulance drivers will tell you. There's definitely stories in the hospitals, nursing homes, etc., and I've been privy to some of them. So when this story came along, um, I just thought it was interesting. So one place that we don't usually hear ghost stories about are ambulances. Oh. So um, the story goes basically like this. This gentleman who has shared the story with me was one of the EMTs. And he and his partner were working the night shift. So when there's no calls, it's boring. And what ends up happening is you try to stay awake or you end up falling asleep. So they're sitting in the um, ambulance and it's early morning hours. Nothing's been going on, which is a blessing and a curse at the same time because now you're really, really tired and he begins to fall asleep. His partner's um, sitting in the passenger seat. She's fallen asleep and suddenly he wakes up and he hears a voice talking. He looks at his partner and her eyes are wide open and he's like, did you hear that? She's like, yeah. And very clearly and distinctly, the voice, it's almost like it was being turned up. Like you turn up a radio, yes. you could hear the, they could hear the voice at first and it was far away and muddled. And then it got very loud, like it was right there in the, in the car with them in the ambulance. And it said, oh my God, am I dying? Like very hysterical and upset. So the um, EMT like looks around real quickly, doesn't see anybody there and as, he, he's looking at his partner like they're trying to figure out what to do. He hears the um, oxygen bottle move and he hears the hiss of it being turned on. So he jumps out of the car of the ambulance and he and his partner, she gets out the other side and they run around to the back part. They open the compartment and there's nobody in there. He would say later that he thought maybe somebody had gotten into the ambulance because they had fallen asleep. And... Um, he opened the, do the doors, there's nobody there. He climbs inside, he checks the oxygen to make sure that their tanks are off, they're off. But they could clearly hear, there's a sound that it makes whenever the uh, tank is pushing out the oxygen, it's a hissing sound. Sure. And um, they clearly heard the click, they heard the hissing sound and what have you. Well, he had heard stories about this particular ambulance from other people who worked for the fire department and the ambulance service, other people had had experiences there as well. And he began to collect some of these stories up and found that on many occasions, people would hear a person talking, they would hear crying out like, help me, help me, I don't wanna die, stuff like that. Oh. And they would hear what sounded like though an ambulance EMT working on somebody in the back of the ambulance. 
and there would never be anybody there. So it was a very unpopular ambulance to have to catch when it was your turn to take a, a, a turn at that ambulance. I bet. Yeah. I mean, you do hear about about uh, you know haunted hospitals, you know, and 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 there's many tales about that. But if you think about it, there's probably as many people. It, you know, die in in ambulances as in hospitals. Oh my, yes, and in such distress, you know, and if um, fear, anxiety, and stress are are precursors to hauntings, which I don't necessarily think is true, but a lot of people believe that, then how, I can't imagine a much more stressful place than being in that ambulance. You know, you're still struggling with what's going on. They're fighting for your life. You're not sure. You're scared. Um, sometimes coming in and out of consciousness and it's a it's a tough it's a tough place to pass away so i could see where someone would be stuck there this sounded almost like a residual haunting there's different types of hauntings right and um a residual haunting because it was the same type of thing all the time almost as though it was being played out the person hadn't made peace with it yet or had somehow embedded their fear and anxiety into the ambulance itself. There's a couple different theories on what causes those hauntings. But I've had a lot of those kinds of stories from hospitals, nursing homes. Like I said, I've almost every place I've ever gone, I've had stories. Well, I did a place called Hillview as a, it's an old abandoned nursing home. Prior to that, it was a, uh, a poor house. And I was one of the first people to ever ghost hunt the place. And while we were there, the people that had leased the property had apparently talked to the local police because they had a lot of stories. And um, I'm there, and one of my guys comes in, and he says, Patty, there's, like, all these people out there, these cop cars. There's, like, four cop cars out there. Are you sure that the people that let us in here, you know, have the right to do that? So there, I went and found them. They were in the building with us, and they're like, no, 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 that, that's it's fine you know we have the lease we're allowed to bring anybody in here we want so the um, man who had leased the property and I walked out to the police officers and where Hillview sits it sits on um, like on the count on the line between the county and the town so the police officers from both the um, from two different boroughs are able to to work that site and so there were cop cars from both places there and we walked up to them, and one of the cops said, um, no, no, we're, we just want to talk to the ghost lady over there pointing at me um, because we have stories, and we're not going in the building to find her. And <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so I sat at a picnic table outside for oh, probably two and a half hours listening to all their haunted stories about things that had happened at Hillview. Um, you know, it had been abandoned rather than putting in a massive amount of money for repairs. It had been like the county um, nursing home type deal. And um, they left everything there, the charts, the, um, I mean, all the records were in the building, their people's belongings. There was a room in the basement that was filled with suitcases, still filled with clothing. Um, all the beds were there, it, the equipment. It was just literally looked like somebody just came in and swooped everybody out. A and then it, nightmare. Yeah, and it was like sat. It was like sat that way for I guess ten, fifteen years. So everything had kind of weathered, and you know, but it was still a sound building. And but it was weird. You'd pull open a drawer, and there would be people's charts, their records. Everything was still there. They didn't take any of it or dispose of any of it at the time. 
and personal possessions, uh, records for each room. It was bizarre. Well, um, while we were there, you know, we did a lot of that stuff. There must have been a dozen ghost stories in that building, if, at least a dozen, if, if not more, in that particular building. And the police officers were kind of funny because they were they had chased people. Um, there were a lot of people that would call in. Since there's some houses around it and a golf course, and uh, they would call get calls at night that somebody was in the building. Sometimes there were people in the building vandalizing it. People had broken in and stripped out all the copper plumbing and all that stuff, you know, the wiring and all that. But on other occasions, they followed people up to the fourth floor and into a room thinking we've got them and there would be nobody there. Interesting. <laughs> stuff like that. I'd hear those stories. So there's a lot of those kind of stories that you can get to hear. And it was funny that they, would, they wouldn't go inside the building to tell me the stories. I think it's funny that they knew that you were there and your reputation must have preceded you for them to take time, especially in their vehicles, you know, on duty maybe even, you know, from multiple jurisdictions to come and tell the tell you their stories. Yeah, it was, I have no idea how they knew. It was maybe my second or third time out there visiting and my guys came in and they're, they're like, Patty, there's like all these cop cars out there. Are you sure we're allowed to be here? And I'm like, I think so. Let me go find the owners and, you know, and. <laughs> And they're like, yeah, we want to talk to the ghost lady. We understand you guys are ghost hunting it. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, well, we want to tell you our stories. We've had things happen in here, but we didn't want to go in to find you because I don't want to go in that building if I don't have to. The next episode, I'm going to have to introduce you also as the ghost lady. Now, I get that a lot. <laughs> I've had that. That started out in um, uh, well, Altoona High, um, Junior High. I went to do a speaking engagement many years ago, and the kids had made this great big banner that said, welcome, ghost lady of PA. And I happily adopted that moniker. They gave me the banner. I still have it. They're probably all out of college, married, have kids by now, those kids that were there that night. But um, what a badge of honor. Those well, kids it's certainly gave complimentary. <laughs> it's, it's literally how people describe me anymore. So, and they were the first ones to ever do that. So hats off to them and thank them for that because it made it made my dad stood there and looked at that and smile and thought that is the coolest thing i've ever seen that's great <laughs> so but and the, and the kids just love the ghost stories it's really cool to get to tell a group of kids the enthusiastic kids stories i'll have to tell you a story maybe i can tell it to you tonight um of my favorite i'll never forget this little girl as long as i live so um before we go on with the others, I'll tell you the story. It's really easy. There's a house in Roaring Spring where well, there was a house in Roaring Spring. It no longer exists. And the house had a bad reputation for being haunted. This family moved into the house and they had uh, three or four boys and a little girl. The boys ended up in the biggest room in the house because they had to put all the boys. There's three bedrooms and they had to put all the boys in there. The baby and um, mom and dad ended up in the next smallest bedroom. And the little girl ended up in this very small bedroom. She hated the room from the time she got in there. She was like five years old, just a little thing. And she would cry and she would, you know, just try to stay up. And she hadn't been that kind of a child, the night terrors and the whole nine yards previously. But after she got into this house, it was a real rough patch. And her dad was not a nice guy. He was... Um, he imbibed too freely at night with alcohol and he wasn't a real pleasant fella and sober. 
So he got very quickly got tired of this and he would, you know, give her lickens and he would yell and he would make things tough. And her mom tried to scurry around and make it better and what have you. And one night the little girl was crying and screaming and she would always say that there was a man in her room, a scary man. And um, mom came in, went in to comfort her and calm her down. And dad was mad. He was drunk. He was angry. And he'd had enough of this crap. So he came in and he made mom leave and he locked the little girl in her room. And she, they could hear her crying and pounding on the door and screaming for help. And I can't even imagine how this poor woman managed to go lay down. But he made her go to bed and they lay down. And um, he had kept taken the key to the room and put it in his pillow. So mom couldn't sneak out in the middle of the night and go get her. So as soon as it was it was morning, mom gets out of bed and she wakes him up and she's like, I got to get her up for to help me. I need you to give me the key. Give me the key. So she um, she got him to give her the key. She went into the room. The bed was askew and the bedding was on the floor and the bed had been kind of knocked away from the wall and knocked out away from the wall from the headboard as well and mom picked up the bedding the little girl's not in the bed she begins looking for the little girl and turns on the light and the little girl's behind the headboard she crawled back in behind the headboard and had died in the middle of the night oh um had died of fright is what the doctor would later say i don't know if that's even possible but apparently that's what they took it as and um, this story, for some reason, attracted a couple, some of the children who understood. I think there's this intrinsic, I get it from children because adults don't listen. As a rule, sometimes, you know, when they're scared or they make light of their fears. So I'm at the library out there and um, we had gotten a much larger group that night to, to do storytelling than anticipated. Like they moved me, they had me in a little room upstairs and then they moved me down to the big part of the library and then they realized they didn't have enough space down there for everybody that showed up. So we ended up on the, they ended up on this big porch and I stood out on the sidewalk and told ghost stories, right? Okay. And um, there's this little girl, she's about 10 years old. She's sitting there. I would later come to know this was her aunt that had brought her. And she's bouncing up and down in her chair like a little jack-in-the-box and she's talking to her aunt and she's going I hope she tells it you think she's gonna tell it oh I hope she tells it I hope she tells it and I was trying in my head to figure out what it was that she wanted to hear so desperately bad so that I could fulfill this request and finally she said something that made me realize it was the story I just told so I finished up with the story and I said you know ghost stories don't always happen far away from here in fact there's a ghost story that happened just up the, up the road here. And it happened to a little girl. And this little girl got up, she looked like she, I had just given her a touchdown or something. She's like, yes, 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 yes. And she's jumping up and down and her aunt's grabbing her madly screaming, sit down, sit down, be quiet, stop it, stop it. Mm -hmm. And it was comical. And the little girl was just so excited. So um, I love listening to the kids, you know, they love the stories and they have such enthusiasm. Excellent. <laughs> That's well, too bad somebody had to lose their life, but I mean that. I mean it is. It's a terrible story, but actually, I'm not, it was that interesting. I found it in a doctor's notes. Like people don't realize it, but a lot of doctors in the 17, 18, 19, and early 1900s, they kept handwritten notes and journals about their patients and stuff. And I had a friend who was a doctor who had 
been collecting these for years and he gave me literally a clothes basket full of these kind of notes that he made copies of for me. And amongst all of that, I found that story. Do you know, and, and I'm sorry if you said the time frame of that story? It was um, the late 1800s. Okay. But yeah, it was, but, and, it's, and people don't realize those things exist and I'm sure they're, they're dying out. Those, those notes are getting thrown away in somebody's old attic or, you know, when they're cleaning it out and there's like, well, we don't need this crap anymore. But among all the dry patient talk, there were often notations that were interesting about patients and observations and stuff that gave you these little vignettes on life in that time frame. So, so going on from one child to another, um, the okay. next story I wanted to tell was the, the one is about a little boy who was 10 years old and he had lived in the house that he lived. Um, he was at his whole life. He had never moved. It was parent. He was born in this house. And one night he was in bed laying down. He had turned off the light, had just begun to fall asleep. And you know that feeling when somebody sits on the bed, how the bed just sort of moves and shimmies? He had that, that moment, and he thought his mom was sitting on the bed. And whatever or whoever was there touched his leg, just bumped his leg a little bit. So he definitely felt a person. And he rolled over and opened his eyes expecting that it was his mom who was sitting on the bed for some reason, like she had to come and tell him something or whatever. And instead he came literally almost face to face with this little boy. And the little boy was perfectly formed. He looked just normal as could be, except for one thing. He had little black holes where his eyes had been. Oh. Like the eyes were not formed. And there's a whole classification of ghosts and that don't, have eyes there's a, there's a story from roaring springs about a ghost that didn't have eyes you'll run across that often in um the paranormal literature so anyhow he you know you can imagine how scared he was um he, he's laying in bed he's wide awake he sees this and the little boy had a box in his hand and he was holding it out to the the 10 year old and he reached out for the box and the little boy pulled it back and he said um give it to me and he held his hands out he said he just kind of had this feeling like he needed to take it and in that moment the little boy just faded away so he didn't know what to do with all of this he just turned on the light and you could see the imprint on the bed where the other little kid had been sitting so he knew that it was real he that was his only experience for ever. He'd been in a house 10 years. It was his first experience. So nothing else happens. He never sees a little boy again. Five years go by and he has, um, he's now 15 years old. He's almost 16. He's got a girlfriend and she comes over to do homework and she's waiting for her dad. Her dad's running late and she's really tired. So she falls asleep in his room and He's downstairs with his mom and dad, and he was supposed to wake her up whenever her dad got there. So her dad gets there. He goes upstairs to wake her up, and she doesn't want to wake up. He's like, no, no, come on. you got to get up. Your dad's downstairs. Let's go. And she looks at him, and then she looks past him up at the ceiling and just passes out, goes back to sleep. He shakes her again, and he wakes her up, and he's like, come on. And she sits up, and she's like, did you see it? Did you see it? 
And he's like, see what? And she's like, the little boy, the little boy that was on the ceiling. And he's like, what are you talking about? She's like, there's a little boy on the ceiling. Like he was literally clinging to the ceiling. And he's like, no, you must have had a bad dream. She's like, I don't know, but the kid had no eyes. Hmm. And that, of course, gave him the willies because he yeah, had some little boy with no eyes in that same room. Well, he finally he told her the story that night about what had happened. And he's like, I don't have any explanations. So um, fast forward another few years, he and this girl ended up getting married. They hit some hard times and end up having to move back home with his mom and dad for a little while. Now they've got a little one of their own. She's about two, two and a half years old. And they're all three sharing the same bedroom. And at night, his little girl starts to wake up and t talk to somebody. And you know how two and two and a half year olds, you can just make out a few of the words, but not the whole conversation. So he's laying in bed at night and he hears her talking. And finally he says to her, who are you talking to? She says, the little boy, nice. He said, there's no little boy. She said, uh-huh. He looking for his mommy. His mommy's gone. And he said, I just realized every night she was saying the same things. They were having the same conversation almost over and over again. And it was, you know, it was limited because she was two. But he said, this happened until we left the house. And I made sure we left as quickly as we could. And he has, he's never figured out why that happened and it's not like a normal haunting and i think that's one of the reasons i felt this was an interesting story normal haunting it happens repeatedly over the course of time and you kind of can piece it together usually there's a background for the piece of history that might go with it like somebody died in the house or something like that he couldn't find anything and of course with a house that doesn't mean it didn't happen if a child's parent dies in a house you know it doesn't necessarily make the the historical records um especially if it was something that happened more recently like and i will tell you from doing research the first person to own a house is probably the one you'll find the most historical documentation for if it's an old house so houses get named after their first owner or a prominent owner one of the two so you know susie smith um built the house and it's always going to be the smith house unless susie smith's got somebody that rents a house or buys the house 25 years or 100 years later whatever and it's mr jones and mr jones is a political figure or a mover and a shaker in the town then it's the jones house so that's the stuff you're having to you have to look for but it, you might find very little to nothing about the families in between the two smith and jones because they just didn't make they weren't interesting enough for people to write it down what does it take to be noteworthy <laughs> exactly but you know that's the stuff that it's in the paper or he's a mover and a shaker so there's documentation there's something that makes people um, interesting enough to be remembered historically speaking but there's others that are just not noteworthy so they just pass on through history and nobody takes note of them so this was probably one of those houses because he could find nothing on the house itself yeah, the, the the story you said about the, the the boy missing his eyes, and you you've told other stories about um, demons pretending to be humans, you know, yes. and how something about them is just not quite right, and so 
whenever you mention that, that's the first thing that went through my mind. So is this is this a demonic in one in one's case? And then to see a boy hanging off the ceiling, yeah, that that's certainly not human like behavior. So I, yeah, that's where it's my not. mind went. And that's a good possibility as I, you know, that's one of the first things I would have checked into for me being me. Um, And I will tell you, I've come across other ghost stories where that Spider-Man like thing has happened. There's a place in Gettysburg where on multiple occasions they have seen a person in the one corner of the building. It's a huge building and it's the same place like he's taken up residence in that corner. And that's the best way to explain it. It's like he's like a spider. He literally can climb up the wall and hang there. And he does it in part, I think, to freak people out. But he's been seen by multiple people. Well, I mean, I guess once you die, I mean, you're not bound by physical laws anymore. So (laughs) why not have some fun? I mean, as a what what 10 year old boy doesn't dream of being able to hang off the ceiling? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, that's, it, it, I will tell you, I've heard those kinds of stories before. In fact, I've actually seen that guy in Gettysburg on multiple occasions. And um, he's very flamboyant and he just seemed to enjoy it. But I don't know, I've seen, I've heard others, uh, probably a half dozen or so other such stories over the years where people have seen somebody climb up a wall or climb across their ceiling. And I agree, it's creepy as crap. And, <laughs> You know, it definitely, I, anytime I look at a ghost story and I see things where, because the, the rule is that demons can mimic humans, but not perfectly. So there has to be something off. It can be very, very small or very, very large, but something has to not be right. They can't perfectly mimic us. But that was the first time I'd ever heard that, you know, ghosts or, or, or spirits without eyes. You know, so yeah. that's, that, that was, that was new for me. There's a story down at Roaring Spring. There's the old railroad track down there. And I got this story from some older people probably 25 years ago. They were probably about 70 or 80 years old. And I met them at a local Grange meeting. And they were telling me this story. Um, In the early 20th century, everybody would walk the railroad tracks to go places. I love this story. (laughs) So people would walk the track and people were friendlier. So, And it's a long, I have to tell you, I've walked that piece of track. It's a long hike from Roaring Springs to Haldaysburg, and it's through woods. It's isolated. I've ridden it. The the steam train goes through there now. Yeah. Yeah. If you take it. I actually did ghost stories on that steam train one one year. It was a lot of fun. And I told that story as we were going through that area. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, um, people would see somebody in the distance, and they would, like, hail them, try to get up their attention, see who they were. Maybe it was somebody they knew. Maybe they'd have somebody to walk with, made it a little safer, and they could pass the time while they were walking. And reportedly multiple times people would see this guy walking and when he would turn around to look at him eventually and they'd try to catch up to him he had no face no face at all nobody knows who he was to this day he could have been a mm-hmm. vagrant who got hit by a train or a hundred different things yeah sketch artist would have a really easy time with that one <laughs> so this is the guy with no face Mm-hmm. And you'll you'll hear ghost stories about people who appear without faces um, frequently. You know, there's yeah, wh- for what purpose other than shock value, maybe. Honestly, I think sometimes it's just that they haven't materialized all the way. I've seen photographs 
where like I, one part of the body is completely looks completely real and the rest is still transparent and just barely there. It's almost like they haven't completed the manifestation. Whether they're too weak to do it, um, you know, they just don't have enough energy or they're just, we catch them in that moment before they completely manifest it. I don't know, but that would be a good possibility, I, I believe. And I've seen multiple photographs like that. I've seen, I know when I, when I, I don't do the readings and stuff much, but when I was, would do them for people and I only do them when they really have a serious need, I would have times when I would say to the people, um, you need to hurry up because they're getting tired. And when they get tired, they start resorting to other ways to talk to you because it's exhausting. So They'll either get very brief in their answers or they'll start showing you pictures, stuff like that, something that makes it easier for them. And I, I know when that's beginning that we, don't, we have a limited period of time here. And so if you have something you really need to know or say, let's get right to that part. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So, but I, I just think that the, the whole subject is you know really fascinating to me. I spent a lifetime... And so there are a lot of stories where there's people manifested that they their feet were missing or um, their faces are missing, things like that. Well, I have learned something now. So the next story I wanted to tell tonight was something um, kind of a crisis apparition. So there are what they call crisis apparitions that appear in um, in a crisis moment and seem to be when somebody that wants to try to assist you in some way. So the story is actually about a gentleman by the name of Frederick Jordan and this took place at uh, Penfield Reef Lighthouse in Fairfield, Connecticut. Now the year it was built was in um, 1874 and Mr. Jordan became the lighthouse keeper there in 1916. He was apparently a nice man, very pleasant, worked really hard. Now, that's a really tough job because being the lighthouse keeper meant you had to, no matter what, be on your mark, get your, keep that lighthouse light you know, there so that he could warn people about you know, where the uh, shoals were and what have you. That was the whole point of it was to let them know that where it was safe and where it wasn't. So that light has to be there. It's a beacon for them to come in or to be, be wary. And people would know that, uh, you know, ship captains would know that as a rule. That's what this meant. So there was a, a really bad piece of reef around that area. And his job was to let people know you're close. If you could see the lighthouse, you, the light from the lighthouse, you need to avoid this area. Get away from here. This is, this is dangerous. And um, it's also an isolation for him. You know, he's stuck out there by himself or virtually by himself for weeks on end is how this worked there was a head lighthouse keeper then there was um for smaller lighthouses then there would be an alternative person who would take the duty maybe one or two other people so you'd go out there and stay for three or four weeks then somebody come out relieve you and you could take the boat and go back and you know you'd have a month off and then the next guy might do it so they took it in shifts like that and so you might be out there for an entire month or two or three weeks by yourself. And he was um, actually returning to home from the lighthouse one night when a, a really bad storm 
blew in and he was rowing home in a little rowboat and he got caught up in this storm and never made it home so uh he drowned and it was you know a while later until they found his body after that it didn't take long for the stories to begin the first story was that he was heard or seen in the lighthouse one of the things that happened a lot was that um, things would move, objects would, would be moved around, the lighthouse light would turn itself on, things of that nature. And there's a lighthouse keeper's logbook that they jot notes down. Saw such a ship, this happened, that happened, whatever's going on. And the book would be opened up and flipped back to the night when Jordan died. And it was, felt by a lot of the lighthouse keepers that it was Jordan who was helping. He would, um, there was a lot of times that there were lighting issues, equipment malfunctions, stuff like that, and they always blamed it all on Jordan. <laughs> but here's the thing that kind of finished the whole story out. And I mean, I could say some of that stuff's probably just wishful thinking. It's pretty easy to say, hey, Jordan did it, rather than, yeah, I, I wasn't paying attention to my job. But then there were several occasions where people who were out on, sh on boats and uh, rowboats and things like that at night claimed to see a man rowing toward them as if he was um, trying to help show them the way to safety when they got too close to the reef. And when they described the man, he fit the description of Jordan and it was interesting because they didn't see him out in the distance rowing toward them or hear them hear him they would just he would just be there rowing at them and then whenever they got turned and they would turn around to say goodbye to him or thank him he was just gone they didn't see where he went but the story has lingered for all of these years a little over 100 years now and apparently Jordan is still on duty that's commendable it is. He seemed like he was a, a nice fella. And, you know, a lot of ghost people get hyped up on ghost stories and they always want to make them out to be bad guys. It's, once in a while they are. But most of the time they're not. They're just human beings being who they were in life. Their personality is the same. Their character is the same. So if he was a nice, decent guy who was always worried about making sure everybody got safely where they needed to be, He's still out there trying his best to do that for people. It's a good story. I like it. I was. Now, the next story I wanted to tell is really interesting, but in a different way. I have always been fascinated with ghosts who help solve their own crimes. Oh, okay. So there's a wonderful story. Um, it was on Unsolved Mysteries and what have you about a young lady by the name of um, Tara Bassa was her last name. She was a nurse, she was murdered, and she would come to a doctor from the hospital and give evidence that later on was helped the police to solve her murder. And the doctor actually contacted the police and said, this sounds insane, but this is what's been going on. So I, there's also um, a very small sampling of them, but there are also cases where um, legal issues have been resolved by the paranormal. There's a case called Chapin's Will in North Carolina where Mr. Chapin passed away 
leaving a will where he gave everything to his one son and left his other sons completely unprovided for. And eventually he would appear to his oldest son, the son who got everything. And every time he would appear, he would be wearing this heavy great coat that he always wore and he would pull it open and show him the inside pocket. And the young man, he was a married man with kids, he wasn't a kid, um, became convinced that his dad couldn't rest because something was in that pocket he needed to deal with. And he thought it was that his father had made another will. So he went to friends and neighbors and he said, I want you guys to come with me. I want you to go with me to my mom's." And he went to his mom's and he explained to her what was going on. And he said, can you let me have the coat? And they fiddled with the coat for quite a while before they realized that there was a pocket on the inside that he had sewn shut. So they snipped the stitches and opened the pocket. And indeed, there was a more recent will in which he wrote a, a little bit about he had been mad at his other boys and out of a, a fit of anger, he had um, disowned them in the will. But after he calmed down, he knew what he had done was wrong. And he was setting up a Cain and Abel type situation, he thought. So he corrected this mistake and had not had time to get the new will probated or into court or whatever it had to have done, lodged in legally. So um, why he sewed it inside the coat instead of just sticking in the pocket, I can't answer. But he actually, the oldest son went to court, had, had the will overturned, and I thought this spoke volumes about his character because he had the will overturned so his brothers could have equal shares of the farm and set everything right. Again, I'm quiet because I just I just can't think of anything complimentary to say about that. I mean, that's just a it's a good story. It is a good story, and, and um, like I said, I thought it was it spoke volumes to him. And by the time the whole thing was done, his wife and he had died. This gentleman who died had found the will had died, but his wife and daughter went through with the process and honored everybody's wishes. And I just thought it spoke volumes about their character that they. They wanted this corrected, and you, you know, even though it wasn't in their own financial best interest necessarily. So, like I said, who you are in life is who you are in death. And this guy had this Mr. Chapin was um, realized what he had done. So the story I really wanted to tell for about tonight was actually one I've not I had just recently found, and it's it takes place in Ann Arbor, Michigan area, um, in a little area called. Uh, Dixboro, and it's supposedly takes place in 1845. I mean, the people did exist in all of the background material, and this is a fascinating story to me because it's one of only a handful of stories where the ghost has come back and named their killer. Oh. So there was this uh, woman by the name of Martha, who um, Martha Mulholland. She was. She came to visit her um, sister who had married an immigrant by the name of James Mulholland. So Martha married, or Martha came and stayed with her sister. She ended up marrying James's brother, John. So that's how she became a Mulholland. So she and her sister, Anne, both married brothers. Now, the couples didn't get to do a happy ever after. So not very long after all of this happened, Anne became sick. 
She had severe stomach pain. She had terrible dreams. She would fall into delirium. She lost the use of her legs, and eventually she died. The doctors could not figure out what was going on. So after she passed away, Anne gets sick, and same thing, and she dies. A few weeks after Anne and Martha both die, Dawn dies same way. Same series of strange, mysterious symptoms, leaving James as the uh, only person left in the, in the family. He ends up inheriting everything. A few weeks after all of this has been disposed of, and it's, you know, it's just now town gossip, isn't it strange that they all died within a few weeks and that um, James ended up with everything? Wonder what will happen with him since, you know, this should have been exposed to whatever mysterious element killed his brother and his sister-in-law and his wife. So um, at that time, there was a gentleman who came to town. His name was Isaac Van Wert, and he rented Martha's home, former home. And okay. he would end up going to court, to the police and then to court, to file an affidavit stating that he... He had not known the area. He was not from the area. He did not know the stories. He just knew the lady had died. And that's all he knew. He would say in a court affidavit that at night he would see the apparition of, of Martha. And she would come into the bedroom and she told him, they robbed me little by little until they killed me. Now, he has got it all, and then she said it was James, James, yes, James, has got it all at last, but it won't last him long. And she wanted him to know that she was murdered. Based upon that warrant affidavit, they would eventually um, disinter the two sisters, and it appears that it was arsenic poisoning. So that's... Um, you know, I think it's interesting because they took it seriously enough that the, the police felt they needed to open this up. It wasn't um, an illness after all. It was a serious issue. And there's a couple other cases like that. There's a case in West Virginia where a woman appeared to her mother after she died and told her mother who murdered her and how he murdered her. And the mother nagged the police until they disinterred the body and found the evidence of the murder. It turned out that the coroner for that particular case and the undertaker were both the best friends of the man who committed the murder. So they kind of looked the other way. Uh, and that's how it happened that they got he got away with it. And then when mom mom literally nagged them into it. There's no other way to say it. The district attorney basically said, look, if I dig her up and we don't find any of the stuff you're telling me there's there, will you stop? Just go away. She's like, yes, if you can tell me that her neck's not broken and this didn't happen and this didn't happen, I'll go away happily. And um, when they disinterred her, they found that indeed her neck was broken, that the undertaker um, and the coroner had actually wrapped a scarf around her neck to keep her head still. And her husband had said, well, she loved that scarf and her mother had never seen her wear it before. And she was suspicious about that from the very get go. But she swore in court that her daughter appeared to her and told her what had happened. 
So I find those cases really interesting because now we've got a legal issue that's being resolved based upon this, you know, the testimony of a dead person. Well, there's still physical evidence because I really would hate to think that, well, not hate to think, I mean, I would really want to think though, but I mean, a jury would have to hear, potentially hear a case like that. And it's now, <laughs> he said, he said, she said, but one of the he that he said is deceased. You know that's yeah, and that's, and that's uh, what makes it interesting though is that it's you know the fact that they took a second look at the cases mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that there was physical evidence. You know that's, yeah, there was something to look at. There was the ability to, to find out that it was arsenic poisoning. There was the ability to find out that he got into a terrible fight with her and strangled her. In the case from West Virginia, and then he paid off two friends of his to cover it up. He would, by the way, get convicted and end up in prison because the physical evidence was sufficient for that verdict. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like his attorney, you can see why an attorney would say, what, well, now we're going to take the ravings of a, of a mother in her grief and, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, and all that. So there was, I mean, there was a distinct possibility he wouldn't have. But in this instance, there was enough compelling physical evidence and then eventually the coroner and the um undertaker confessed yeah he was our buddy and we, we covered it up for him and so now they're accessories to murder <laughs> exactly but you know it's one of those things where what are you going to say you got the police breathing down your neck how did you not know that she broke her neck you were the coroner you're the undertaker well, what happened was our buddy came to us and, you know, that kind of stuff. So one of the places that I've always found interesting, I told you a story, I think, right up near the beginning of the podcast where um, something weird had happened in a school I, when I was in fourth grade. Yes. So I've always been, like, I've always had an ear tuned for ghost stories that happen in schools. This one happened in England. Um, but I just thought it was a fascinating story because... I've heard so many ghost stories from schools, and it's so typical of them. So this would have been back in um, around the year 2000, and this young young fellow was in um, high school. So him and two of his friends, after the, the last class of the day, which was their physical education class, they volunteered to help clean up and put all the balls away and all the other implements that had been used all that afternoon. So by the time they get done and get down to the showers, they're pretty much the only three people left. The teacher tells them, finish up and let get, get going. So they do. And as they're coming out, they come out of the uh, shower room and they get dressed and they go out to go out to the front of the building to leave. There's just, just this long hallway. There's nothing, no turns, twists, anything like that. So if you go through the doors from the gym out into the hallway, you can see all the way out to the front door. So they're walking along and out of nowhere, this boy about 10 years old comes, hits into them, bumps into them, and just keeps on going. Well, they turn around to see who this kid is, and you know, why is there a 10-year-old in the high school? And he's not there. So the first boy, the boy who's telling the story, he's like, at first I thought it was just me, so I don't say anything, and I'm just standing there. And the other, one of the other guys finally says, did you see a kid? Where the heck did that kid go? And at that point, they all talk. And among the things that they... Um, they noticed is that, as I said, it's a long hallway. So if somebody was coming walking at you in the hallway, you would have seen them. 
there's not a whole bunch of other people around. It's the end of the day. Everybody's pretty much gone. There's no kids floating around the hallway. So you would have seen him. But all they saw was just that blur as he bumped into them. And then as they turned to look to see who he was, he was already gone. So, so they, uh, they, this rattled them pretty good. And eventually they started asking some questions. They knew that there were stories. And you cannot stop teenage kids from telling stories. I'm sorry. It's just part of life. So they knew there were stories. And he started looking into them. There was a, actually, there was a cemetery right outside the school. And, the, you know, and it turned out that the school was built on cemetery ground. And, of course, you know how the story goes. Hey, we took all the graves, but we didn't. Oh, poltergeist all over again. Yeah. Hey, there's a place in Pittsburgh area where they were building a new cloverleaf. And they found out that 700-plus graves from a local church that they said that they had moved at the time they built the, the highway there, um, none of them had ever been moved. They pulled the tombstones and moved the tombstones and left all the graves. I have the newspaper article about it. Can you imagine you're like putting in this bigger cloverleaf and making the road wider and all of a sudden you start pulling up dead bodies? No, I could not fathom that. No. <laughs> in my world, I could fathom it, but seriously, oh. um, I mean, stuff like that happens quite often. We have no clue. It's extremely expensive to move graves. It's, and there's a lot of rules and regulations to moving a grave. So a lot of times they cut corners and take the tombstones and leave the bodies. Yeah, and I have to tell you, when, like, land is taken by the state or the city to build a school um, or something like that, the rules, they're really strict. And so it's slow go. I have, I have a story that um, I met a gentleman one night who was a friend of a friend kind of a deal. And he um, he and I sat there and we're talking at this table at dinner and turned out that he his job was moving graves. So whenever the state comes in and decides to widen out a highway or build a new highway or say a company is going to put a new building up, if there's a cemetery and they're going to appropriate that land, he was the guy that would move the graves. So it's a it's a process. And what happens is you have to be very strict about keeping the person exactly the way their family left them. So suppose they dug up, you know, John Smith and John is laying in a casket with his hands like this. Then when he's put in the new casket, you have to put them in a new casket. You can't rebury the old casket. Um, Did not know that. Yeah, state law. And um, anyway, he has to look exactly the same. So they have a, a tent that they use. And what happens is as soon as the casket's opened by the two undertakers who are also there, there's three people there, the two undertakers and then this guy who's responsible for the body being re disinterred and then reinterred appropriately. So what he would do is he would take a Polaroid photograph and he would, or a series of them. And if there was something special, like the guy had a pen in his hand or he had a expensive watch on his wrist or wedding rings, stuff like that, everything had to be right down to the last detail, exactly the same. So he would take all these photographs. He would watch them lift the body, which they had only certain parts of the body they were allowed to touch. Like they had, lift under the backs and the heads and the, and the feet and legs and stuff like that 
and they would put the cat body in the new casket. They would arrange the person appropriately, and then he would come over with his Polaroids, and he would say, no, her hands are crossed and clasped at her breast. You need to make sure they're that way. No, she has um, a cross in her hand. Where's the cross? Did it fall off? No, it's here. We just put it down in her, in her hand here. No, it has to be laying with the cross hanging out like her family left it. And then they would all three sign off on the fact that they have authenticated that this grave has been successfully you know, moved. And then seal the casket, and then it's taken to the new spot, and then reinterred. And, of course, I know a ghost story that he told me that night, mm -hmm. of course. So, um, so, but that's exactly the process every time. So you can see how that would be very laborious. I guess, yeah. And it just, so, again, this begs all kinds of questions. So if the family buried someone in a $6,000 casket with the, all this ornate everything on it, are they then responsible for the equivalent casket? Or are they no. put in pine boxes? You know, it's they just, don't, No, they don't get put in pine boxes. They do have to be in a decent casket. Mm -hmm. um, one of the funniest things that ever happened to me, I swear this is a true story. So I'm driving through Altoona one day, it's early October, and I'm with a friend, and we're driving through Altoona, and I see two men carrying a casket down the street. Like, we're going down this way, and, and on the cross street, I see these two men coming up the street toward us carrying a casket. And I yell, turn around, turn around. <laughs> And the person's yeah. like, what are you doing? I'm like, turn around. we got to go back. Circle the block. Circle the block. And mm -hmm. we circled the block, and there's nothing there. And I'm like, I saw guys with carrying a casket. There was two guys carrying a casket. I swear to God. There's nothing on this block except private homes, except one little bar. So I can be a bit of a bird dog whenever it, I'm seeking out something. And this was driving me nuts. I know I saw what I saw. Mm -hmm. As crazy as it sounds. So I get him to pull the car over and I jump out of the car. He's like, where are you going? I'm like, I'm going into the bar. I'm going to find out if they saw a guy carrying a casket. And I walk up to the bartender. My friend is like doing this. Oh, my God, she's insane. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be over lady. here. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be way over here in the corner and I'll open the door when they throw you out. Mm -hmm. I'm like, fine. So I walk up to the bartender and I go, this is going to sound crazy. But just a few seconds ago. I'm driving down the street, and I saw two men carrying a casket. And this is the only place open. Do you have any clue what I'm talking about? And he leans back, and he yells into this other room, Hey, Joe, there's a lady here about the coffin. And this guy comes out and tells me this story about his neighbor was an undertaker, and apparently the family had this body of this their dad disinterred and for a, because of trying to find a, a medical issue that was a family medical issue and the state won't allow you to reinter somebody in the same casket but it was a brand new casket so the casket sat in the behind the uh, undertaker's facility next door for like a year and this guy wanted the casket because he wanted to use it for um halloween okay and he had this great idea to like make a gimmick for his bar <laughs> So they tore the lining out of the casket, and he was going to buy it. But it's illegal to sell a used casket. If you want to know some trivia, that's it. It is illegal in the state of Pennsylvania to sell a used casket. 
So he couldn't buy it. And the undertaker kept saying, I'm not giving up my license to sell you a casket. Well, one day, this guy put up a, a lawnmower out in his front yard for sale. You know, he didn't want this push, this ride mower anymore. So the undertaker comes over and he says, do you still want the casket? And he's like, yeah. He's like, I'll tell you what. I can't sell it to you, but I could trade it to you. I'll trade it for the lawnmower. So they had the first year they used it, they actually had it standing up and you could take your picture in the casket. Mm -hmm. And then they, they decided that that was a little morbid. So they lined it with plastic and filled it with ice and beer and you could bob for beer at Halloween. <laughs> Um, but it's a true story. It honestly happened. I don't know if they still do it or not, but it, so they had done it them, for like five years. You did see them carrying the casket. Yeah. Yep. And okay. I saw them as we're driving by. I'm looking down the side streets as we're going by them, and I see these two men carrying a casket. Well, you had to carry it from the basement outside and around to the front because it wouldn't fit up the steps. Makes sense. Okay. I mean, you, you would stop if you saw an elephant on a side street. Why wouldn't you stop for a casket? Yeah. My friend thought I had gone absolutely insane. He kept saying, I didn't see a thing. I didn't see a thing. And I'm like, I'm telling you. So I learned a lot from that particular day. I guess yeah, that you can't sell a used casket. So I guess the my idea of having refurbished caskets is just, I'll have to give up that dream. That's right. That's a dream you're going to have to pack away because it's against the law. Or we go across state lines, maybe. That, I might not know about that part. You might, yeah. You can maybe sell them like to other states. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's it's. I, I just it was a bizarre moment, and I'm like, only I would be the person to see two guys carrying a casket up the street in the middle of Altoona. Mm -hmm. So that's just how my life rolls. So, so I have one last story, and then I'm gonna um, end the ghost stories tonight. But I've had so much fun telling ghost stories. Oh, I I've, I've loved listening to them. These are these are great. So my last one's going to be a little creepy because we should end with a creepy note. So as I said, I, I did, um, earlier on in, in the episode, I said about how nursing homes and, and all these places are have so many ghost stories attached to them. What people don't realize, and I'll have to tell a couple stories that happened to me over the years, because I did um, for almost 15 years total, I did healthcare. And I've worked in nursing homes and I've worked in private homes and what have you and had some really strange experiences. But this one, this one stood out when I was when I was um, doing some research and I stumbled across this story. So this is a, a, a person from a nursing home who was a, an aide, CNA, and they ended up being um, on a floor doing, they call them tours. Um, in the nursing homes, at least the nursing homes I've worked in. So you've got a, a, an area and, and you have like 18, 20 people and that's your tour. You have to okay. take care of those people for the evening. So this lady was, um, she was doing her tour and she ended up in this area where she was always scheduled. There was a, an old lady, she was a, um, an African-American lady and she always, she was, she had Alzheimer's. So she was always a little dotty. You know what I'm saying? She would just say off the wall stuff. Well, the rooms were semi-private, so eventually they put somebody in the room with her, from, and the person wouldn't stay for very long because the lady was kind of creepy and scary, and she would, you know, wake you up in the middle of the night and yelling and stuff like that, which anybody who's ever dealt with Alzheimer's patients, it's totally expected. But if you would put a person who's 
not got Alzheimer's with a person who has Alzheimer's, it's really rough. So eventually people would move out. Well, this one lady got put in there with her and the old lady, the old um, African-American lady just keeps staring at her hour after hour, day after day. And the woman begins to complain to the CNA and the nurses and she wants out of the room. And so the CNA would say to this old lady, now quit staring at her. That's just not nice and stuff like that. And one night she um, said to the woman, why do you keep staring at her? And she says, because she's already dead. Get her out of here. She's already dead. Well, you know, that's just Alzheimer's talking. That's what she thought. And it creeped out the patient really badly. You can imagine having some old lady screeching that you're already dead. This began a pattern every day. This old woman would tell her roommate she was dead. You're dead. Why don't you just go away? You're dead. Stop Stop coming in here. You're already dead. And the staff realized that this was really bad for this other woman's mental health. So they were they made made arrangements for her to be moved to a different room. It's not as easy as it sounds. You have, there's a lot of red tape to changing things out in a nursing home. And uh, they decided that, uh, that after breakfast this one morning, they were going to move her out and settle her in another room. So the, the CNA goes in to wake her up, the woman, and, you know, the old lady sitting all bunched up on her bed, the old African-American lady, and she's just, she's like, well, you get her out. She's dead. I'm telling you, she's already dead. She starts her stuff, and the CNA hushes her, and she says, just, just, just be quiet. And um, she goes in, and she wakes up, tries to wake up the other lady, and the lady doesn't move. And she tries a second time, and the lady doesn't move, and when she reaches out to touch her, if you've ever touched a dead person, you know immediately. There's just, there's no elasticity to their skin. They're cold. It's just, it's a different feel. And she pulled her hand away, and the old, the old African-American lady said, um, I told you she was dead. I could see the spirit standing there beside her waiting to take her. Nobody listened to me. Nobody listened to me. But I seen him. He's ugly, and he wanted to take her away. Now he's gone. And the CNA was, you know, more than a little creeped out. And, you, you know, you can see why. Oh, sure. <laughs> and, you know, and, and it seemed that uh, this woman would see things that other people didn't see. They just marked it down to her Alzheimer's until this event. After that, they began to pay more attention. And there were a couple other instances where she made comments about somebody and the things she commented about came to be. So I, I just thought it was it was a creepy little story because I've lived through through things like that where an old person has said things like I saw death standing there, I saw the angel of death or whatever. And um like with children, we often don't listen when we should. Well, which, uh, I guess the same thing would happen with somebody with Alzheimer's. You would you know, discount what they're saying. Like children, children are the most rational, or not the most rational beings, you know, and they also have the, the biggest imaginations. So you put that, that's a combination with it tends to question their credulity, you know. It does. And I will tell you, um, if you can bear with me, I'll tell you the story that made me, always makes me, 
go back, I hearken back to that story when I was when I worked with the Alzheimer's patients, which I did a, a lot of them. I loved Alzheimer's patients. They were just as wonderful, sweet human beings, and I enjoyed my work with them immensely. Um, and I had this one lady. It was a private care, and she was very far into the Alzheimer's. She would talk to the wall, and she would call out to her parents as though she was a little girl, and she was reliving conversations from her past and what have you. I knew nothing about her other than she was married twice. Her kids were all from her first marriage. Her second marriage was later in life. He was also passed. And, you know, she liked quoting and music. That was it. That's all I knew. And I would be with her every day, and she would just chatter away about, you know, things that happened in the past, and would I help her go get the cow and bring it in and stuff like that. <laughs> And, you know, and with an Alzheimer's patient that's that far along, you just go, sure, honey, let's um, give me a few minutes. I'll go get my shoes and then I'll come help you. And she would, by then three seconds from now, she's off to something else, you know. And so this one day she's just talking to this guy. His name was Leland, I believe it was. And there was this hope chest that sat in the corner of her living room. And I was instructed to never touch the hope chest. So I never did. And. She's talking to that hope chest, whatever, whoever Leland was. He's apparently over there by that hope chest. And she gets really agitated, which was unusual for her. She didn't usually get agitated. And she starts going, no, Leland, I would never let them cremate you. I made sure you had a right burial. And she's going on and on about this and getting really upset. So I'm thinking, well, it's 1130. It's time for lunch. Let's just get her redirected. So I go over and I say, well, honey, it's time for lunch. You'll have to say goodbye to Leela and talk to him later and get her into a chair and get her out to the kitchen and get her some food. And that totally redirects her. And when I get her back in her chair and settled, she's a happy little camper. Well, her son comes in and he says, how's mom today? And I said, well, she's doing OK, except she had a strange little episode because it wasn't like her. Um, to get that upset. And I said, she was talking to somebody over by the hope chest. She called Leland and she was going on about how she made sure he had a funeral and he wasn't cremated. And her son looked gray. He turned absolutely gray. And he literally looked at me and he said, I got to go. And he walked straight out, slammed the door. And I'm like, okay, that's a little bit weird. So about an hour goes by, hour and a half. And he comes to the back door and he motions me to come out and I go outside and um, like a little garage area and I'm, I'm standing there and I said yeah what do you need and he goes tell me exactly what she said again and I told him the incident a second time and he sits down on this pile of tires like like just like the air is whooshing out of him and he says oh my god it's true he's and I said what's wrong with you are you okay and he said well, let me tell you. And he starts to tell me, he said, Leland was her second husband and he didn't have any family much and he had no money really either. So about the time she started getting really sick with the Alzheimer's, Leland got sick and died. And she wanted a funeral for him, but it would have had to have been coming out of her pocket. And her family decided that they didn't know how long she'd be ill or how, what form this was all going to take. And they needed to keep the money to take care of her. So, even though they had told her that they had a funeral for him, he was cremated. He was in the cedar chest in a box 
And when she died, they were going to put him in her casket. And it freaked him out. There was only three people in the world that knew it. Him, his sibling, and his wife. So when he left me, he had called both of them to make sure that nobody had spilled the beans. And then came back. And he was so rattled by what had happened. He spilled the beans. So, I mean, I've, I've, and I've had other experiences as well. But mm. that one, just because I was, I was being totally rational. I did not for a moment think she was really talking to anybody. Oh, I feel bad for Leland. <laughs> I feel bad for Leland too. I've always thought that. But, um, you know, so there's all kinds of stuff like that. And I, I, I always, uh, I always listen more carefully than I used to because these stories I think have been kind of instructive to me that maybe we shouldn't doubt everybody. That doesn't mean I believe everything I hear, but I take it a little more seriously. Like if somebody tells me something, I don't go, oh, poo, poo. But you'll at least evaluate it to see if it has yeah. merit. Yeah, that's that's so. Yeah, when my son was born, and I, my wife and I talked. I said, you know, because I've had experiences when I was very young and nobody believed me. I said, I'm going to be a little more open-minded if our son comes up and says he sees certain things or hears certain things. So, yeah, yeah and mm -hmm. that's that makes sense to me. I mean, because you've had that experience. So if there's a takeaway from the show, listen to other people, give them the benefit of the doubt and at least give them the dignity of being heard. Amen. <laughs> so I've enjoyed this a lot too. I, I really have too. I, I love your ghost stories, Patty. Oh, I, have, I have books and books and books of them. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know what? And I have to tell you, I write about a lot of different subjects and, um, I enjoy every one of them, but at the end of the day, telling some ghost stories or reading some ghost story for me, it's like going home and I, I, they're just a part of the fabric of who I truly am. And as I told you the other week, you'll have to come over sometime when my kids are here because my boys can tell ghost stories till the cows come home as well. And, um, they've had their own experiences through the years and it's really cool one night all my kids were here and their kids were here and all the kids were playing, you know, and what have you, except my oldest grandson. And I, they brought a bunch of chairs in from the dining room to the living room. So there was seating for everybody. And there was this one chair left open. And my little grandson, who was maybe three years old or two or three at the time, climbed up into the chair. And as his uncles and, and I are telling stories, um, he's just sitting there listening. And we're doing that round robin thing, you know, where, um, like Dan will tell a story and then all of a sudden I'll make me or Ben or somebody else in the family go, wait a second, I have a story about that, you know, and off they'd go. And my little grandson's just sitting there so intent and listening. And I realized there were three generations of us mm -hmm. sitting in that circle. And I got my love of ghost stories from my grandmother. And it passed down, you know, to my kids and now to my kids' kids. And a hundred years from now, I hope my kids' kids' kids are telling ghost stories um, because there's there's just something intrinsically um, heartening about those stories. They're, they're human condition stories. And I love that about them. I don't always just see them as ghost stories. I see all the other nuances in them. 
about our culture and the human condition and somebody's life. You know, I never forget for a moment that I'm always telling stories about other people's family. It just that matters to me a lot. I've met families I've written about and their moms or their uncles or what have you have come to me and said, thank you. Well, on that note, would you like to <laughs> say good night, Patty? I, mean, I will. I, that's, I will. Uh, that, that seems to be an appropriate point to, to end. I mean, it does. So I wish everybody a wonderful evening. If you would like to reach out to us, you know, we have the, um, the share group. You can go to the share group and talk to us or share a story or what have you um, from the paranormalist. And I know, Stu, you can tell them how to get in touch with the, the group and the and everything you've set up because Sue's been doing an awesome job at getting all this put together. I just have to tell stories, what I'm good at, <laughs> and he's been doing all the other stuff. So lots and lots of kudos to you. Thank you so much for everything you do. Oh, you're welcome. And uh, just to say the we do have an email address and it's sorry it's so long but it makes sense. It's paranormalist at theparanormalistpodcast.com. So email us your stories as well. We'll be yes, happy to hear them. We'd love to hear them and maybe share some of them if you don't mind. Let us know if you and we'll reach out to you. And the next episode is the Black Eyed Children. Okay. I will make sure all the lights are turned on for that one. <laughs> <laughs> it is a creepy, that is a really creepy subject. That's one of the subjects that I personally have a hard time with. Mm -hmm. All right, Patty. So. You have a great day and a wonderful tomorrow. Same to you, my friend. Okay. Good night. Good night.